circle, yes, we run the space. 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. The show is written, produced, and is broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory known to settlers as the Bay Area. I just wanted to start off with a quick dedication to um, graduate, the late graduate apprentice, Louis Sawyer, who recently passed away and always advocated against the prison industrial complex, which is relevant because tonight we discuss incarceration. From Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete to Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, the surge of freedom fighters challenging our mass incarceration system is ever-increasing, particularly in light of growing ICE raids and the reign of violence targeting black and brown bodies. On tonight's show, I am honored to be joined for the entire hour by Keith Watley, founder and executive director of Uncommon Law. We will listen to voices from um from Uncommon Law's event, Uncommon Heroes. We will discuss recent criminal justice reform efforts and the changes Keith continues to envision for the fight for justice. All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Kat Petru. Stay with us. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. As mentioned, I am joined here live in studio by Keith Watley, founder and executive director of Uncommon Law. Uncommon Law is a small nonprofit organization based in Oakland, California, that provides counseling and legal representation for California prisoners serving life terms with the possibility of parole, building relationships and working together to forge pathways out. Keith Watley is also an attorney advocating for the rights of prisoners and parolees for nearly 20 years and trained 200, excuse me, trained hundreds of lawyers and law students and other prisoner and parole advocacy. In addition, Keith teaches at UC Berkeley School of Law and is the recipient of the Santa Clara University School of Law's 2009 Social Justice and Human Rights Award and the 2016 Kathy Pugh Award for Exceptional Mentorship from UC Berkeley School of Law. Keith, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. For added context, in the state of California, there are currently 35,000 human beings serving life sentences. Since its founding in 2006, Uncommon Law has helped 180 lifers get released. That number may seem small compared to 35,000, but as our discussion will reveal tonight, every single person has a story, deserves a way out, and has the capacity to make a world of difference. Back in November, Uncommon Law hosted an incredible event called Uncommon Heroes. Three people received awards for their work fighting to bring hope and healing to individuals and families devastated by harsh, misguided criminal justice policies. I want to play just a quick clip from that event. Among the voices you'll hear are Keith, the recipients themselves, and acclaimed actor and social justice champion, Danny Glover. 
that one decision would impact all of my future decisions and push me like a man on a mission to stand in a position to show the world that I am more than just my worst decision. We are more than just our worst decision. Everyone, everyone in prison should have access to the resources, the tools to be able to turn their lives around and get themselves out of prison. Everybody should have that chance. My name is Troy Williams, and I am on the board of directors for Uncommon Law. I'm formerly incarcerated. Three years ago, I was serving a life sentence. My name is Nate Williams. I was one of the first juveniles in the state of California I was tried as an adult. Spent 32 years in prison. He'd been willing to do the work necessary to account for the harms that he both experienced and caused. And when the parole board saw that, they knew this was somebody who was ready to go. Going into the Board of Prison Hearings as an incarcerated person, one of the things that we have to do is represent our transformation. We have to have insight. We have to have remorse. We have to have, really, our future goals laid out in a way that the board can understand. We bring them home and we see the contribution that they make. It is real. It is tangible. The work of mentoring, their work of servicing. Since home, I've graduated my bachelor's degree from CIS. Graduated from also Stanford, a remade program. Started my own nonprofit, Choice for Freedom. And I also run Ceasefire, which is a national organization that works with probation and police department. Typically, having an attorney being appointed to you by the board, we're luckily as prisoners to get maybe one 30-minute visit from an attorney who has to represent our life issue. So that's what we do. We provide counseling and legal assistance to people serving life sentences. We help them figure out how they ended up in prison and how to get out. You're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and I'm joined live in studio by Keith Watley, whose voice you just heard. He's the founder and executive director of Uncommon Law, a nonprofit law firm dedicated to getting folks out of prison. You just heard his voice, as I mentioned, in addition to that of Danny Glover, Troy Williams, Nate Williams, and other folks uh, from Uncommon Law's November 2017 event called Uncommon Heroes. I just wanted to give you listeners some context for the work Keith does and the other voices that you'll all hear on tonight's show. So one of the most powerful things I observed at the event is how the people you've worked with get out and immediately start serving their communities. Um, And actually many provide significant guidance and support for others while inside. From founding organizations themselves, as we just heard, to working one-on-one with individuals to holding restorative justice circles, their paths are completely inspiring. Keith, would you like to share a story about one of the awardees? I would. Uh, first, I would start by mentioning that the in the clip you played, there was a discussion about the amount of time attorneys spend with their clients before a hearing. And the the speaker was uh, Troy Williams. He was talking about the state-appointed attorneys who represent clients before the parole board. They meet with their clients one time. Uh, by contrast, Uncommon Law meets with clients many, many times over months, sometimes years, in preparation for their parole hearings. It's it's one of the things that uh, makes a difference in, in our approach. Uh, the One of the awardees I'd like to, to talk a little bit about, you heard some of him... Um, in that clip, that's Nate Williams. And Nate 
is uh, someone, he was sentenced to life when he was a kid. And he'd been in prison for decades. He grew up there, learned how to survive there, uh, turned his life around there. While there, he also was corresponding with a professor and author, uh, Michelle Alexander, Mm -hmm. uh, the new Jim Crow. And she could recognize from his writing that he was someone who changed and had a lot to contribute, but that he was facing this, what seemed like an impossible barrier to get past the parole board, and he needed help. So she reached out through some channels, reached us, um, and I worked with Nate for quite a few months before his parole hearing, represented him in the hearing, and he came home after 32 years, um, which is um, an insane amount of time, obviously. But what's what's even more remarkable about Nate is that uh, when he got out, he really um, immediately went to work using his skills um, and and his commitment to helping young people. By um, he he worked in community organizations and then formed his own called Choices for Freedom. And one of his jobs right now is to go into the same juvenile detention facility, the same juvenile hall he was locked up in in Los Angeles to work with the young people to help keep them out of the prison system. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he's just an example of what's possible when people get a chance to go back and contribute all they have, all they've learned, um, and having walked that path. Yeah. Well, there's just such a massive um, misconception of life in prison and also who goes to prison. And uh, Nate's story reminds me of the stories that we heard that night where I think every single person who you've worked with at the very least continues this this um, like circle of accountability um, to the people they know who might still be behind bars and to the young people or others who aren't in prison but who are at risk for being cycled through that pipeline. So, right? Absolutely. I mean, what, what usually happens in the time that someone is doing the work to, to figure out all the things that contributed to their... Uh, the, coming to prison is they recognize that there were patterns that existed in their in their lives and their in their family and their communities that they um that they didn't understand that had them make decisions that at the time they didn't understand but during their decades in prison they came to, to gain really deep understanding of how those factors contributed to their decisions and, and the crimes they were involved in and they recognize man if i just had someone explained this to me when I was 10, 12, 15, or 16. And now they have this knowledge and they say, look, I owe it to that community that I that I took from, those families I destroyed, to help prevent more young people from coming through this process. If I can help one, then it's it's worth it. And so they, they, they have that commitment. They don't always get those opportunities, unfortunately. Um, too often they're recognized as um, da- dangerous. Mm-hmm, um, exactly, and and not given opportunities to really contribute when they get back, and that's that's a, a huge missed opportunity for for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I wanted to give a bit of a broader political context um, to the work you're doing with Uncommon Law. There have been a number of recent reform efforts at state and federal levels. On the federal level, I can mention two bills going through Congress right now. There's the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act that would allegedly overhaul prison sentences for non so-called nonviolent drug offenders and allow for more judicial discretion during sentencing. And then there's this other one with a very long name, the Corrections Oversight Recidivism Reduction and Eliminating Costs for Taxpayers in Our National System 
Act, which requires the Department of Justice and its Federal Bureau of Prisons to find a way to reduce inmate recidivism rates on the state level. I'll just name a few more on the state level, and then I really want to hear your response to this. Um, On the state level... The ACLU is working on bail reform in 33 states, including California. Of note, this is really interesting, I thought, the only two countries in the world with cash bail systems are the United States and the Philippines. Uh, Finally, in California, we've had Prop 47, which reduced penalties for some crimes, Prop 46, which modified the three strikes law, and Prop 57, which increased parole opportunities for some alleged offenders. What do you make of these reforms and how do they impact the work you do? Well, the first thing I would say is that um, we have to credit the people working so hard to make these changes. Uh, Some of them are really obvious, but they certainly hadn't gotten any attention for way too long. Now they have some attention. Um, things are happening. The The problem that we see is that many of these reforms, um, they leave out. They leave out those who committed serious or violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they're, they're expressly written into the legislation to exclude people convicted of serious or violent crimes. And I think the reason for that is that there's this, what I've heard referred to as this, this false dichotomy, you know, this, this, this false belief that, that there are different kinds of people who commit crimes we label as violent versus those that we label as nonviolent. Um, but in my experience, um, what, that's just based on what we're more comfortable with. It's easier to think about someone who didn't commit a violent crime uh, usually a drug crime or property crime, to say, well, okay, that person probably shouldn't have to go to prison. Certainly shouldn't be there for life. Uh, it's a tougher thing to really consider. Well, maybe those who committed violent crimes don't believe, belong there either. Right. Um, and I think that what I recognize is that the factors that contribute to someone um, committing a violent crime are the same as the factors that contrib- contribute to them, others committing uh, what we call nonviolent crimes. And um you think about drug cases. Um, really, a drug case may just be one worst-case scenario away from uh, being a murder or a kidnapping case. Mm-hmm. The underlying addiction and related desperation are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, yet the drug purchaser may, in some cases, get treatment, certainly under some of these reforms, and they should. But um, if the crime turned violent, he or she gets prison with no treatment. Nothing to deal with the underlying addiction. Um, and these are the same people, the same factors that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right before, I know we're going we're gonna to listen to another segment in just a sec. And I just wanted to name that before uh, we went on air, we were just naming how systemic the oppression is and um, those factors that you spoke to that, that lead someone to a so-called violent or nonviolent crime. Uh, I just really appreciate that you named that. But... We can come back to that after this next clip, perhaps. I want to turn now to um, another clip from the night of the Uncommon Heroes event. I was able to speak with a guest who happens to be a parole officer in San Francisco, and he offered a unique perspective into the role, into a role that is really easily vilified. So let's take a listen. 
Hi, this is Kat Petru coming to you at Impact Hub Oakland at the Uncommon Law, Uncommon Heroes event. I'm with Charles Brown. Thank you so much for your time right now. Thank you. And Charles is a parole officer. So what can you tell me? I know people often may think that parole officers are the villains in these cases. Yes. What's been your experience as a parole officer? How did you get into that field? Actually, I stumbled into the parole agency. My career and my field is social work and... um, criminal justice. So I started with the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice about 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. From there, I worked in the courts for about 10 years. Then I went to release programs, and then I started escalating to homeless services. And actually, I've only been there since August of this year. I'm almost in my 90-day probation period. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm new at it, but I'm not new with people, so. Right. Yeah. Right. Parole officers are really individuals. So it all depends on you as a person and how you feel about people. I believe in helping people. Some officers are different because it's it's a dangerous job, but you got to really understand people, I think, to understand how to treat individuals. Tell me about the so-called criminals that you've worked with. Why are they incarcerated and what are alternatives to the current criminal justice system? A large population of so-called criminals are not criminals. They're actually drug addicts and people with mental illnesses and people who are chronically homeless. You have a small percentage of criminals. Our system is filled with people who are just mentally ill and chemically induced people who don't understand how to really survive or some don't have life skills. They're starting very young now. If there are other parole officers listening to this interview, what would you say to them? How can parole officers better uphold justice? I think being more passionate and more caring about the individual. Once you understand the case itself and what happened and what pertains to the case, I think that's where you should start from and not look at the charges that have been presented to a person. And then you also have to look at the individual who wants to change because a lot of them do, but there's no, actually, sometimes there's no help to change. It depends on you as an individual. Some guys come with a military background. With me, I'm coming from a people's background, a community background, so... And the last thing I'd love to ask is, with the rise of women speaking out against sexual assault, against rape violations, Mm -hmm. you work with folks who've been incarcerated because of rape charges. Yes. And yet they're still whole people. So what, what do you see as better solutions than incarceration? More programs that solely focus on the mental aspect of the charge itself, rape. I think that these guys need to be rehabilitated. They come from broken families and really an abusive background. So that plays a big part in it. Is there anything else you want to add or share? Just want to say thank you. Very nice to meet you. Likewise. Have a good evening. Thank you so much, Charles Brown. Nice (laughs) to speak with you. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Kat Petru, and I'm joined by Keith Watley, founder and executive director of Uncommon Law, which is a nonprofit law firm that works directly with incarcerated folks to help pave paths out of the prison system. And that was my conversation with Charles Brown, a parole officer in San Francisco, who I spoke with at Uncommon Law's Uncommon Heroes event last November. 
Now, one of the primary roles you all play at Uncommon Law is that of cultural and racial translators between parole commissioners and lifers, enabling each to understand the other. Given everything Charles shared, I take it he is not someone who requires quite as much translation as many others. So, first, if there's anything you want to speak to right off the bat from listening to that piece, I'd love to for you to share it and then i also would like to know what are some of the obstacles you face on a regular basis as translators well the first thing i'll, I'll address is the the tra- translator issue you know if you think about it like this i'm i'm the boogeyman counsel you know most of the people on the pro board spent their careers uh in law enforcement and they were committed to locking people up mm-hmm. and, and most of the people they locked up were black and brown and they lived in communities that they can't understand and we're afraid of. Uh, part of my job is to help them understand who my client is as a person, as an individual. Uh, if they can do that, then they can appreciate their capacity to change. If they can't or won't, uh, then they won't be able to see that that capacity and people will stay in, in prison the way they are. Uh, one of the other things I'd like to address is uh, you you asked him about the Me Too movement. And, and, and I really appreciate that, there's, that there is... Um, a greater understanding of the impact on people in pretty much every aspect of life, and including talking about people who are domestic and blue-collar workers who, who deal with this regularly and, right. and don't get much much attention. But, um, you know, the people I see are people who are surviving in prison, people who were, um, as as young children, they were, they were brutalized, um, and they they've had to deal with this throughout their lives. Um, women in prison, about 85 or 90% of them are survivors of um, domestic violence, including sexual violence. And and half of them are further um, assaulted while in prison. And we treat, obviously in this society, we treat women and girls as objects. We, we ignore obvious signs when they've been sexually abused by members of their own family. Mm-hmm. We destroy their sense of safety and their ability to trust people. Then when they learn to protect themselves through violence of their own, then we pretend to care about them and put them in prison. And we force them to grow up in an environment that's bent on breaking and, and destroying them, really. And yet, they survive. They, they overcome. They develop ways to navigate this environment that, that ultimately saves their lives. In other words, they, they respond to these, these years of being powerless over all those that w- would dominate them, and they, they learn how to protect themselves. Uh, but as a result, they may become um, distrustful, uh, suspicious. They may start lacking empathy for others. They become emotionally stunted. Uh, but they also somehow, sometimes, they'll even learn how to take advantage of others. They learn, in short, how to live in prison. Mm. And then 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, uh, they get a chance to get out. They go to the parole board, an opportunity to be considered for release. But what they show are things the parole board labels as uh, dysfunctional, antisocial. Um, in other words, they're showing characteristics that we forced on them. Right. And and those are the people who have a lot of a lot of trouble getting out because they can't quite. The board doesn't understand that 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 journey. Right. And what you're speaking to is so endemic of the rape culture that we're saturated in. And so just like the way folks are labeled as criminals, women are also labeled as criminals or as mentally unstable, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's this broader culture of violence that is an 
one, we all have to be accountable as individuals and address the systems, right? Absolutely. And we, right. we have, uh, we have such a disconnect. I mean, we have, we have parole commissioners who will, in a parole hearing, someone who has, has decided to, to be vulnerable enough to share these, these really difficult um, aspects of their lives. And these commissioners are asking questions like, well, you need to be able to understand why he raped you. Ugh, ugh, it's so disgusting. Before before you could be released. So disgusting. Well, we're going to take a music break. We can continue this conversation after we get back. Please stay with us. Yes, check it. Yo, blue rage, black man in a cage in San Quentin. Animal in the jungle language used against a brown man, against a black man. We got your back stand. React to the fact because the Supreme Court let it stand. Raise up the appellate hand. Yell it if you smell it, man. Chookie ain't no rookie. The cookie jaws got a racist hand. First, we got to save your life. Then we got to get you out. If we got to wait you out, we may have to break you out. Black and born, captive in the USA. Raised in the wicked game, people play. Struggle and pain is part of the end. Same waves of the ghetto, U.S. death row, but where the spirit flow, only the Lord knows. So we rhyming for freedom and justice, to get the peacemaker off death row. It's a broad generation who need him, to keep writing Tukey books, cause they need An him. animal in his habitat raged, the lion cage, the court swayed, the DA used metaphors this way, soul snatches be the prophets of rage. We on the front line and on the front page. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm your host, Kat Petru, coming to you live in studio with my guest for this evening, Keith Watley, founder and executive director of Uncommon Law. The song you just heard was Free by Soul Snatchers, Frontline, Rico Pabon, and Cam. It's about Stanley Tukey Williams, who, for those less familiar, was a founder of the Crips and was executed in 2005. His supporters, however, maintained his innocence, and he continues to be celebrated as an embodiment of redemption. For those just joining us, Uncommon Law uh, is a nonprofit law firm based in Oakland that provides counseling and legal representation for California prisoners serving life terms with the possibility of parole. Up next, I am so excited to share with you the voice of Eddie Zhang. Eddie is the co-director of the Asian Prisoner Support Committee and was Keith's client even before he founded Uncommon Law. Let's take a listen. So I'm Kat Petru with KPFA, and you are? Happy New Breath, everyone. My name is Eddie Zhang. I'm the co-director for the Asian Prisoner Support Committee. And what did you say? Happy New? Happy New Breath. Happy New Breath. Yes. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from my appreciation of uh, life and uh, breath, right? Because each breath that we inhale sustains our lives. And sometimes we take that for granted. And I want to remind myself and other people never to take our breath for granted. Thank you for that reminder. Can you tell listeners about the Asian Prisoner Support Committee? Well, the Asian Prisoner Support Committee was founded in 2002 when myself and two of my uh, friends who are both Asian Americans uh, who signed a proposal advocating for Asian American studies, ethnic studies, and uh, as well as for the administration to honor our rights. But we were thrown into solitary confinement and I ended up spending 11 months in solitary confinement. And it was during that time in the year of 2002 that the Asian American and Pacific Island community came together in the Bay Area and created a movement to advocate for our release from solitary confinement. And so they started the Asian Prisoner Support Committee to help us. And we just called it APSC. APSC continues. 
supporting uh, currently and formerly incarcerated individual. This year is our 15th year, and for about 13 years of that time, it's all volunteer-based, volunteer-run. And it's this year that we finally have funding because of the need of the community. We finally have funding to hire four uh, full-time staff, and 75% of our staff are formerly juvenile lifers who spent more than 20 years inside the prison. And two of the people actually faced uh, deportation because they weren't citizens of the United States. So I think in this country, we know that, that black Americans, African Americans, are so often targeted by the police, by the criminal justice, so-called justice system. But you don't often hear about Asian Americans incarcerated and the struggle there. Can you talk about your experience in the so-called justice system and then the realities that Asian Americans, and of course, that's a huge category, but the challenges that people face in the system? Yeah, so... Uh Mass incarceration impacts everyone. So in the mainstream media, it's always portrayed that mass incarceration only impacts the black and brown community because they are overrepresented in, in the prison industry complex. However, the Asian and Pacific Island community also are impacted by mass incarceration and deportation. Because of our number are small, so that's tyranny in small numbers. As a result of modern minority myth, that people think that Asians have the good, they don't have any problems, they don't have issues, and as a result of cultural shame, that we don't talk about the challenges in our community. We only uplift the success stories, but ignores the challenges, or the people who are impacted by disability, by you know, discrimination. Therefore, people are not aware of what's happening with the AAPI population, especially in the prison industry complex. We will categorize as others when we are inside. So there's no disaggregated data to represent like, who are the people that who are impacted mass, by mass incarceration and deportation. So in the latest uh, news nationally, the Department of Homeland Security uh, with ICE, the Immigration Customs Enforcement, have been rounding up uh, Cambodian and Vietnamese refugees for mandatory detention and deportation. And even the Vietnamese population that who have signed a repatriation agreement with the U.S. government, that anyone who came prior to 1995, that they cannot be deported. Yet, lately, they have been rounding up people who are pre-1995 cases and detaining them, interviewing them, and issuing travel documents to deport them. And many of the Southeast Asian refugees came into the United States as a result of imperialistic policy and the proxy wars that created by the United States. So when they came over here, they're not being put in a nurturing environment to heal their trauma of war, yet they get another layer of trauma, which is the language barrier, the cultural difference, and generation gap. So when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline for a lot of young people, for the immigrant populations, not only for the Asian-American Pacific Islander, but for black immigrants, for other you know, Caribbean immigrants and salvations, we talked about the migration of school-to-prison and deportation pipeline. And that's something that people are not aware of, the impact. So that's why our Asian Prison Support Committee's goal is to be able to raise awareness about the detrimental impact of the mass incarceration and mass deportation have on the AAPI community and also supporting the currently and formerly incarcerated to empower them so we can create the prison to re-entry the leadership pipeline. And the way that we do it is trying to infuse the idea of using ethnic studies model and curriculums to go into the prisons to utilize this 
to focus on what I call the chi. And the chi that I'm talking about is not just the energy that we're trying to be aligned with ourselves, but the chi that I'm talking about is cultural history and identity as a way to heal intergenerational trauma. So chi standing for, in addition to sacred energy, culture, yes. history, and identity. Yes. So when we, when we are able to really connect it with who we are and where we came from and how we got here, and our connection with every individual that occupies space on this human kind, then we are able to humanize each other. So ethnic studies helps build solidarity. Ethnic studies help building solidarity. But more, what is even more important, ethnic studies really humanize people and amplify life, right? Because you can be an engineer and you can be a doctor, lawyer, but if you're not having cultural humility to really understand you know, that our struggles and our freedom is tied to each other, then we're always being placed as wedges to divide and conquer by the establishment. So how do you bring ethnic studies into prisons? So what we did was in San Quentin State Prison, this is our fourth year going into the prison system to really focus on what we say to empower the people that who are currently incarcerated to take the lead in creating those correct curriculum and tell us what they need so we can support them as much as we can. So we went in there, we asked them to be able to decide what they wanted to do, right? So they created this acronym called ROOTS, which is restoring our original true selves. Because they feel that once they're able to align with the chi, they're able to start the healing process. Therefore, they can understand the actions that they have committed to harm their victims, as well as themselves and the family and the community, right? What you're doing sounds like it's inherently restorative, transformative justice. Does your organization or in your experience working with Uncommon Law, is there a sentiment of abolition? Yes. So there's two things. One thing is our organization value and principle really focuses on how to align with supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Which is focusing around raising awareness within our own community as well as other communities, the importance of fighting against anti-blackness. So that's what we center up, what we do. So it's not about oppression Olympic, where it's, oh, look at us, look at us, we have this challenge too, but really looking at the systemic racism, how the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution continue to allow slavery to be legalized, right? So that's one thing that we really are strong about. And then the other thing is really focused on how do we... Uh, focus on restorative justice that turns into transformative justice where we can change mindsets and change hearts about how do we engage the people who are impacted by poverty, by violence, by trauma. How do we do that? So for us, it's definitely to be able to surround ourselves in this framework of multiculturalism. Uh, so that's, that's what we do. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add? Yes, I want to say that whenever people are facing struggles, being vulnerable, being stressed out, they should all take time to take a breath because that breath is what's going to sustain us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Kat Petru, and that was my interview with Eddie Zhang, co-director of the Asian Prisoner Support Committee. I was speaking to him at the Uncommon Heroes event last November, which was hosted by Uncommon Law, the founder and co-director of which is sitting next to me. Thanks again, Keith Watley, for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. So before we just heard that conversation with Eddie, I mentioned that um, Keith, that Eddie was Keith's client even before he founded Uncommon Law in 2006. So I would just love to know about your relationship with Eddie. Well, as you as you can hear uh, from the clip, Eddie is a man. He's he's a powerhouse. Yeah, um, no doubt. I was actually representing Eddie when he was thrown in the hole uh, where he sat for 11 months uh, for advocating for some changes in the college program curriculum that, that he and others, they wanted some more diverse offerings that helped them understand themselves, their own culture a little better. Uh, now, years later, he and others, they talked about um, roots. So this is, this is them turning that idea that was a forbidden idea into a powerful organization that, that actually now transforms others' lives inside. Uh, and this is, a, this is a man the state wanted to keep locked up solely on the basis of a crime he was involved in when he was 16 years old. Um, now, that's just it's just a, such a crazy, misguided approach uh, that not only squanders such huge potential, but, but it deprives the community of a tremendous resource. I mean, we, we talk about full circle. <laughs> um, just this past year, I represented someone who participates in the Roots program at San Quentin and was oh, wow. found suitable for parole. Uh, in a program that was forbidden 15 years earlier. Um, so that's the power that that exists that's locked up inside that we need to unleash. Absolutely. Do you want to speak more? Did you want to speak more about the roots, which stood for restoring our original true selves? Or well, you know, one one of the things that that I see a lot. Um, what's what's missing in most of the offerings in prison uh, is programming that helps people get back to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the the more powerful programs do that, but there aren't enough of those. And what we see is that people have built up um, all kinds of armor, protection against the world, mm-hmm. um, and a way to shield themselves to 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 hide. And and it's a it's a reasonable response because most of the people in prison are survivors of their own traumatic experiences, violence uh, in particular. Right. And so that, as a as a response, they learn to hide, to not show who they really are. So, and they do that so well, they forget. They lose touch. And they become something that, someone they need to be in order to survive in prison. And a lot of our work is to help them get back to who they originally were, to to relearn how to relate to people, how to communicate, how to open up, how to be vulnerable. It's a very difficult process, and it takes a while. But those who are willing to do it, um, they they come out of prison um, as as you know people who are powerful, powerful communicators, people who are ready to transform their own families and communities. Then, also, um, you've mentioned that there are too few opportunities for formerly incarcerated individuals to use their communication skills, emotional intelligence. Um, to mentor and counsel young people. Can you speak more to that, please, especially in light of what Eddie's been doing? Yeah, you know, the, 
the folks that we've worked with who come out of prison, they are, I mean, you heard Eddie, they're, they're master communicators. Brilliant. Uh, and they get right to the heart of things really quickly. Yep. Uh, no time to, to waste, no time to mess around. Exactly. And and they come with, obviously, uh, a credibility that um, that can reach uh, young people who are going through the same some of the same struggles. Yet we have uh, communities, we have school systems, we have um, sometimes juvenile halls and other places like that, that that try to keep them at a distance. Or we don't want those um, ex-convicts, they'll sometimes call them, coming and mingling with our, our kids, making them worse. Well, these are transformed individuals who can, who can change all of our lives. You know, people talk about um, what the future holds for, for prisons. You know, I think that we have um, an army of effective communicators and transformed individuals coming out of prison. They're going to be the answer. Mm. I think that, that for our devastated families and communities, um, they're going to be the answer. They'll show us what's possible when you provide that kind of help on the front end so that prison is no longer seen as an option on the back end. Got it. And I think that's that's the future. But we, we owe it to to ourselves, to our communities, um, to give them that opportunity. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, when we look back and say, well, who is this, this person that is trying to be released on parole? Well, it's somebody that we failed. Mm-hmm. We failed to, to take care of, failed to help, failed to protect and then we punish them for their response to that. And we owe it as a society to use what we've learned since then to instead of continuing to label this young person as a super predator who can't be changed, we owe it to him or her to give them opportunity to change and to support them in doing that. And once they've done that, let them go give back and, and transform their own communities because they have the capability to do that. We need to support that. We owe it to them to do that. You just spoke to something that I had been really curious to ask you about, which is like how you see um, the work of Uncommon Law situated in a long view of abolition, which you kind of spoke to. If you wanted to elaborate on that, please do so. But the other thing that I'm wondering is how do you how do you encourage the kind of organization that you like Uncommon Law, like the Asian Prisoner Support Committee? How do you how do more of these organizations rise up, right? Well, I think one of the things that that makes a difference is that people get to recognize that the people are inside are the people outside. They're the same. Uh, the same fears, the same uh, strengths, skills, and that that folks come out committed to transform their communities. Once we start to appreciate that, we'll relate to them differently. And what helps that is when you get to meet people like like Eddie um, or people like Troy Williams, or our boy, you heard Troy earlier, people like Nate Williams, you see what they do in the community, what they're committed to doing, who they're committed to being in the community. Um, you say, well, wow, this, this is like just a regular guy, except he's powerful. <laughs> like, or, or, you know, or like, you know, this, this woman has completely transformed her community and her family in a way that nobody thought she could do. Right. And we need to recognize that. And when you, when you see them as like regular people, only more powerful, yeah. um, having survived and overcome in, in that experience, then we start to appreciate, okay, maybe, maybe not everybody in there is the same. Maybe we can, can dispense with the stereotype and see yeah. people as individuals. Yeah. Well, one thing that happens, I think, with the work that you that you're doing and that Eddie's doing and that that you're describing is 
somehow they've been able to unlearn this hyper-individualism that is so embedded in American society. And it's like that, that superpower that you're speaking to is partially like, oh, we're all like my life is impacted by and impacts other people's lives. And then when you tap into that interconnectedness, there's that, like, the power enhances or something. I think that's that's absolutely right. And the people people engaged in that, that inquiry and that conversation in the institutions, they're the ones who transcend the craziness that's in there. Mm-hmm. They transcend these, these crazy, uh, uh, unreasonable, um, violent, sort of politics we call prison, sure. prison politics they they transcend the racial issues they transcend the ethnic issues the gang issues because they're they're on a whole different mission for sure well thank you for that perfect segue into our final clip for the evening um this last audio clip comes from sam hearns who's uh, another person whose journey out of prison was guided by uncommon law I am Sam Hearns. It's such an honor to talk with you right now. You just got out in August. Yes. And how are you feeling tonight? I feel great. Absolutely wonderful. In fact, since I've been home, I have felt absolutely wonderful. I was just telling somebody, even with my challenges, it's like, these are good challenges to have. I love these challenges. Reconnecting with my children. One of my daughters has moved in with uh, my wife and I, so now it's my wife and I. And uh, we have a 14-year-old who's about to be 15 and a 21-year-old who's about to be 22. And there is this reconnection phase that we're still in because I went to prison when before she was uh, uh, before she was even one years old. And it's like. There's that turbulence, but there's also that that beautiful piece of reconnecting with your child. And we have both learned to, we've all learned to appreciate it. In fact, I took, um, before I came here this, uh, this evening, I took our 14-year-old out and gave her her first driving lessons. So, I'm loving it. What other joys have you found in the last few months? New foods. Learning new, new foods. Learning new foods and just being being home with my family. Yeah. Yeah, being home with my family has been the absolute best. Where were you incarcerated? My last institution was San Quentin, but before okay. that I was at Soledad, before that High Desert, before that Lancaster. So all in that 20, 20 and a half years that I was incarcerated, I basically had a small tour of the institution. What was it that kept your spirit alive during those two decades? This is going to sound cliche, but I actually turned to God. I decided this was an opportunity. I was going to take this opportunity to get to know what God was really about. And I found strength in that. And then educating myself and always fighting. Always fighting to get home to my family, especially my children. How did you fight? I called myself a jailhouse lawyer because I took the time to learn as much uh, uh, as much of the rules and procedures and, and case decisions that I felt applied to my case. And I wrote senators. I wrote law offices. I had debates with attorneys. Uh, I mean... I did everything I could to educate myself in that arena 
to try to go about it, to try to convince a court to, to release me. But I'm glad they didn't because it gave me an opportunity to get to know myself. And it gave me an opportunity to really, really get a better understanding and deal with the issues that led me there to begin with. What would you say to your brothers and sisters, your relations, who may hear this interview, who may still be fighting? Keep it up. We get out of things what we put into it. So what, if they're putting in the effort, then they'll eventually reap those rewards. And I look forward to seeing them all home. Is there anything else you'd want to share? For those who are still inside, a lot of times we get distracted by the day-to-day minutia that takes place inside of the institutions. None of it is worth it. None of it. Everything that is worth living for is on this side, and that's where their focus should be. And do you have any visions for yourself and your family in the years to come? As far as career-wise, I want to eventually get into software engineering. I just applied for school, so I'm going to go for that. And as far as family-wise, my wife and I, we've talked about having another child and traveling. And do you think you'll keep fighting from this side? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I got to go before we get out of here and talk to Keith and find out what I can do to get involved. Thank you so much for your time. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome again to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Kat Petru. And I'm giggling because I'm live in studio with Keith Wiley, who Sam Hearns just mentioned. Keith um, is the founder and executive director of Uncommon Law. And that was Sam Hearns, his recent client, who I spoke with at Uncommon Heroes, which uh, is Uncommon Law's event that happened last November. Keith, what can you share about Sam's journey? Well, I mean, there's so many things in what he said. Um, People have to find something um, to sustain them while they're in prison. Um, first, there has to be hope for a better future. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um, some people are sustained by their faith. Most people in some way are sustained by their families and, and the, the hope that they'll, they'll rejoin them someday. Um, and, I mean, the other thing he mentioned was, um, one of the other things he mentioned was about jailhouse litigators he said mm-hmm. jailhouse lawyers but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they are um they're critical because and most of them are not they're not just people who are fighting to free themselves from a, an unjust conviction or sentence they may be doing that but i also see them um helping to free sometimes hundreds of other people um along the way and if you when you go back to um well you heard eddie zing when I was working with Eddie, um, the the rate at which people were granted parole was around 1%. You had about a 1% chance uh, to be granted parole when you went to the board. Over the years, uh, that's uh, increased to, it's around 20, between 20 and 25% wow. now. Wow. Um, and jailhouse litigators wrote most of the court petitions that made that difference. Like, that's got to be clear. Uh, they did that work. Lawyers get to come in. We get to sort of smooth it over. We get to to help uh, the board, the the board or the courts understand it a little bit. Right. But they are doing the heavy lifting for sure. 
Um, and so you also heard Sam talk about uh, an opportunity to, to contribute once he gets out. Yeah. Um, we would love to have the funding to support uh, more of these folks mm-hmm. to get them mm-hmm. trained uh, and, and employed as counselors in these institutions. Uh, they can they can do a, a better job than most lawyers can do. And and not just speaking the language, but but speaking the journey, speaking speaking their own transformation in a way that people find credible and compelling. Absolutely. And we will link to your website where people can donate, which is uncommonlaw.org. Um, obviously, funding is vital for this kind of work. And the jailhouse litigator immediately brought me back to images of Robben Island, which is in South Africa, where Nelson Mandela was incarcerated for almost four decades and two images of Malcolm X in prison, um, both of whom we know were committed to more than just their own lives and did the work, did the legwork, did the studying, did the prayer, did the physical exercise to keep themselves fit and to keep fighting. Um, yeah, those images just come to mind. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, um, it's always... Um, great to see people who who can overcome in that way and and come out and be, um, you know, I mentioned Eddie Zing being powerful. Mm. Um, But when you ask the Eddies and the Troys and the Sams, they will say, I'm not exceptional. Mm -hmm. They'll say there are hundreds, thousands of transformed individuals ready to come home in there. Let's get them out here. Let us find a way to have them rejoin us so that together we can move forward. Together we can transform the communities. Uh, and so it doesn't take a superstar. Right. Uh, people change their lives. They they transform themselves and, and have a lot to contribute. And I, yeah, and I don't name those two. Um, I really like challenging the great man thesis, you know, where we celebrate any of those particular leaders. But just to name, like, the, in my eyes, like, Sam Hearns, Eddie Zhang are in the same realm as what those two really famous men have done um and it, it yeah it's it's right <laughs> Ab- absolutely and and i think um you know the the too often missing piece in this conversation um uh, partly because they're a smaller segment of the population um are the, the women doing this work thank you many, many, many of the institutions um that do have um programs to deal with domestic violence um, they're created and, and led by women, women mm-hmm. who, who said, look, this is this affects all of us. Mm-hmm. We need to find a way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the driving force in those institutions to make sure people get access to those programs that generally aren't aren't widely available throughout the institutions. Well, really quickly, are there any specific programs, women run, women centered programs that you could name for folks at this point? I know I'm putting them on the spot here. Yeah, well, um, there are a few programs that we see that, and they, they reach out to us to help us with, with, with parole issues, mm-hmm. certainly. Uh, the California Coalition for Women in Prison is one of the ones that, that we interact with a lot because they, they advocate on a lot of different levels for people inside. One of the things that they're, they're focused on is people who are serving life without the possibility of parole sentences, mm-hmm. um, often for killing someone who was abusing them. Or, or somehow in connection with that and in response to that that violence. Right. And it's such an overlooked group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but CCWP is a strong advocate. They don't let it go. 
California Coalition for Women in for Prison. Women in prison. Yeah. You know, and this is, we won't go here because it's a whole other thing, but I know Kat Brooks on Upfront this past week was doing a segment about women giving birth in solitary, which is one of the most obscene things I've ever heard of. Um, but we can, we'll do, we can do more work on this. There will be more shows to get into this massively important topic. Um, before we wrap up, I want to give a plug. Uh, you've got a film screening, screening coming up. Uh, do you want to say anything about that? Ascensions, yes. perhaps? Yes, we do. We, we, uh, it's a fundraiser for Uncommon Law. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we host fundraisers with some local theaters. At the New Parkway is Life After Life, a film by Tamara Perkins features uh, some former lifers who've transformed their lives and shows the contribution they're making when they get out. That's uh, Tuesday, February 13th. Yeah, at 7 p.m. at the New Park, we, as Keith just said, 474 24th Street in Oakland. You can call 510-658-7900. And we'll link to that and uh, On Common Law and some of these other organizations on our webpage, which is kpfaapprentice.org. Any final words? Uh, just thank you for for such an important conversation. The the folks inside need help. It takes about five thousand dollars to get someone the counseling and legal assistance to get through this parole consideration process. Uh, we can use all the help we can get uh, to bring more of them home. Thank please, you. Please, please consider giving if you can. Well, thank you, Keith Watley from Uncommon Law, so much for your time and energy on this show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As you can hear by that music, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week to Full Circle to get a sneak peek into local theater company, Theater First's latest work, Between Us. One last reminder that we, the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, are now accepting applications. You can find information and the form to apply on kpfaapprentice.org. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Free Will and Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host, Kat Petru. Thanks to Darlene on the board and our tech assistants from G43, Sharon, Aria, and Kendall. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next. <laughs>